Well, in the, uh, in the panel, we're going to look at the subject of technology in the life of the believer, so maybe we need to sort some of these things out. Okay, Hebrews 12, we're going to take a reading, and then I'm going to just give you a brief outline of some of the work going on in Australia. Uh, but I do really want to get back to this and to address, continue on from yesterday <coughs> with some thoughts in relation to uh, discipline, self-discipline, the nece necessity of it uh, in relation to the life of the believer, but particularly to, in relation to what we were talking about as to being disqualified. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin with which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. I think that will <coughs> suffice for our reading, just in view of the time. Again, uh, we're thankful to serve the Lord in the Southern Hemisphere. Down under, as you well know it, uh, my wife and I, as I mentioned yesterday, were commended uh, in October 2005 uh, to, the, to the grace of God, to the work of the Lord on a full-time basis. Having, uh, and in that, I want to emphasize that we're all full-time servants for the Lord, but uh, it was just that we uh, ceased, felt called to cease secular work and to then serve the Lord on a full-time basis in that way. Uh, my wife and I, from the very beginning, had an exercise that in the service of the Lord, we wanted as much as was uh, at all possible to remain together. It was not a case that I was called to the work and my wife wasn't. I do not believe from the Scriptures that that could be possible, that there could be a man called to the work but his wife not, or vice versa. It is in accordance with the scripture that God calls married couples or he calls uh, an individual. And if you uh, are in the work or you're feeling called to the work as an individual, mark very carefully who you will marry. And if you are in the work or if you have thoughts in relation to that, if you feel convicted, speak to that prospective marriage partner about these things. Uh, we could go on there, but we'll just leave it there for a moment. Just, just be warned about those things. So I'm very thankful. My wife actually felt called to the work of God long before I was ever saved. When she was a 12-year-old girl, she wrote in a little autobiography that she had to do for the class, uh, for the new teacher, the transition into high school, I suppose it was, and the new teacher there wanted to find out about the students and asked them to do a little autobiography, so a bit about their past and a bit about their present and their aspirations for the future. And on the last page, still marked with red pen by the teacher, was the aspirations for the future, and hers were that she wanted to grow up 
and become a nurse, finish school, become a nurse, and then she wanted to become a missionary. She wanted to serve God full-time. Well, she grew up, she left school, she became a nurse, she went to university, she became a nurse, and God has led her into the, into the work of God full-time. So as a little 12-year-old girl, I'm very thankful for what you said, dear brother, about 12-year-olds, etc. God loves children, and God takes great care of children, makes provision for them. And just as, a, as a, an insert here, when I was saved, please be careful about this. When I was saved, I went for three months before I was baptized, and not one Christian, as far as I can remember, not one Christian spoke to me about baptism. That's sad. Because the Bible says, the words of the Lord Jesus was this, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. So the onus is not on the, the one that has become a Christian. It's on those that are making disciples, those that are seeing souls saved. The responsibility lies with them. And I believe we should preach it in the gospel, by the way. Because you will find that that is biblical. The Ethiopian eunuch clearly knew about baptism before he asked the question. And he could only have got that from Philip because Philip was the first Christian he'd ever met. He was on his way home from Jerusalem. He had been up to Jerusalem to Old Testament-style worship, did not find God, of course, and was on his way home. And clearly, Philip explained to him salvation and baptism. And then he asked about baptism. And of course, there is the conviction there in the life of the believer. But uh, for three months, I went and, and then I was baptized. But we went into the work of the Lord. Again, no one spoke to me about assembly fellowship either. I sat for 10 weeks at the back, and not one person said why I was sitting there. In fact, I asked a brother in England, the brother who I was saved under, Mr. Norman Mellish. I phoned him one day, and I said, why am I sitting at the back? That's sad, isn't it? I was a new babe, didn't know anything. And so we need to take these responsibilities. But don't just leave people at the back. Christian children, I, as far as I know, those that are saved and baptized, not holding any wrong doctrine. Yes, there is to be a desire on their part, but as responsible Christians, we ought to be addressing these matters with them. The assembly is the place of safety. And by the way, maybe we should be talking about these things. Forget the report. No, we won't. When Paul wrote to the Ephesian believers and to the Colossian believers. He addressed in the sixth chapter of the Ephesian letter, who? That were in the assembly. This letter was for those in assembly fellowship. And he said, to those in the assembly, children, obey your parents. That's another reason why we should bring children to the meetings, by the way. Because in the Ephesian assembly, they clearly had children present at the meetings, and I believe in fellowship, those who were still termed as children, obviously those who are at a responsible age to be saved and baptized and received into fellowship. I'm not talking about we toddlers. And so as they were reading the epistle, they would have read through and the whole assembly would have been gathered and they would have been listening, and quite a lot of that would have gone over those children's heads. 
But here was something, and suddenly the children picked their, pricked their ears up. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. And then the servants and the masters and those who were there gathered in assembly fellowship. We were called to the work and we left, and the exercise was that we would, uh, that we would stay together as much as possible. So you can see on the top left-hand corner, we, we moved out into a caravan. And immediately we set forth on the road in that very caravan that you see up there. You call it a trailer. Sorry, that's the wrong name. A trailer for us is what we would tow our gospel tent in, just a, a windowless box that goes behind the car. But this for us is a, is a caravan. Then as things progressed and we outgrew the caravan, we got to four children and we realized the caravan was getting too small. And again... And I would encourage any of uh, those who are either in the work or thinking about going into the work full-time, never, ever, ever ask or solicit for funds or money. Refrain, restrain yourself from doing that. God will provide. And by the grace of God, to this present day, we have never asked for a cent or we have not made known to anyone, our needs. At that very time, when the caravan was becoming a bit squashed, we uh, wondered what to do, and we were praying about, do we upgrade to a bigger caravan, or what do we do? And just exactly at that time, a dear sister who owns a bus company in Brisbane, she is a widow, her husband home to be with the Lord about 10 years ago now, but, uh, or just a little bit more, but uh, uh, that she came to us and she said, uh, I notice you're still in the caravan and what, what do you think you're going to do? And she, we said, well, we're, we're thinking of still serving, the, continuing this lifestyle, uh, moving together in the service of the Lord. She said, well, would you like to take one of these old buses that we have? They have to deregister them as passenger buses after 25 years. She said, would you like to take one of those passenger buses and convert it into a motorhome and live, into that, live in that? So we prayed about it and we went back to her and we felt that that was of the Lord. The timing was perfect and we took, there you see that bus, and we fitted it out inside. We now have seven children and for the last five years full time we have been living in that bus. It gets a bit cramped at times, especially on rainy days. We have a washing machine in the boot. We have a, a, an oven and a kitchen, and, and uh, we have beds. Sometimes it seems like people are sleeping on top of each other. But to this present moment, we make do, and we're very thankful that these material things will all disappear anyway one day, and we're going home to the glory. And most importantly, we should keep our eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't worry if you don't have the biggest mansion. Don't worry if you don't have all the material possessions. Let's take this pathway of faith seriously. God gives it to some Christians, that's undoubted. But for us, at the present time, we enjoy our home in the bus. So we do a lot of tent work. Uh, we put the tent up in the summer months, of course, when we are able. And there you will see it in Tasmania, which is the island just down off the south coast of Australia. We are generally down there at the beginning of the year. For the last four, four years or so, we have started down in Tasmania at the beginning of the year. Then we work back across to the mainland following a conference. There we have gospel tent meetings and then a conference early in February. And then we work back to the mainland and we go to Melbourne 
and we go to Adelaide, which is uh, down both down the, the south there, and then we work our way up the Queens, uh, up the east coast, up the uh, border of the east coast, and visiting assemblies. And I would say that in the main, our work is among existing assemblies because we feel the need to see the things which remain strengthened. And that is our desire, to see the Word of God taught among the people of God, to see the gospel preached, to see assemblies flourish and prosper, to see souls saved and, and, and saints edified, and the things of God prosper wherever we may be. And I would encourage you too. There is a great need for a pioneer work, undoubtedly, and there are new areas to go to to preach the gospel, but don't neglect those things which have been established already because they have been established by God. God is well pleased that they would continue and that the saints would be edified and taught. And so we move about and we preach the gospel. I don't know whether you can see that... Uh, no, I did something wrong there, Dan. Sorry. I don't know whether you could see... Yes. The, can you make it bigger? No. No. Don't worry. There is a sign down the bottom corner, and it says, Find your new home faster. And we had the tent just underneath that sign. What a good advert for the gospel. Find your new home faster. I bet you can guess what we preached on uh, in the tent from that location. So as I mentioned yesterday, we were engaged in gospel open-air work, and then we are uh, engaged in putting billboards up. We've had some tremendous, tremendous responses, just particularly recently from that. We have our phone number on there. We have a website on there, and folk can just call. There was a man who, who, who called recently, actually sent a number of text messages about 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning, very, very abusive and blasphemous text messages, and they try to wake you up at those times and cause a bit of trouble and whatnot. And this individual was obviously very stirred up, and so we responded in kind, and you don't hear from them for a while. And then I was out one evening just uh, two or three weeks ago. I was out for tea with my wife and another missionary couple from Africa and just walking down the street and beep, beep, the text message came through from that same individual and he just said this, Clive, I am in the dark and I'm lost. What shall I do? What a question. And so we were able to I actually pointed him to Acts 26, where we were last night. He'll open your eyes. You'll come from darkness into light, from the power of Satan to God, and the forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those that are sanctified. And so there have been other occasions recently where people phone, people ask for a Bible. There's a boy in Melbourne uh, in his early 20s, uh, around that mark, and and he phoned and he, he, he said he had been convicted for a while and he, he had seen the sign and he wanted to talk more about God. And so we talked and, and, uh, and of course their terminology is different. And, and he said, uh, well, I've just been praying that, uh, that God would just help our family. We're quite a div divisive family and there are things going on at home. And he said, I've been praying that God would give us a better life. So I was able to tell and share with him the gospel. And then I, do you have a Bible? And, well, no, I don't. And we, we religiously go to, to church at Christmas time. And, 
And so we were able to send him a Bible and a, and a few other uh, gospel tracts and magazines and things. And he received the Bible. And then we immediately put them in touch with some believers in that local area. And they then take over that work and minister to that. And that's what we do as we move about with the tent work too. We always try to make sure that whoever comes to the tent is put in touch with the believers in that local sphere. Now I want to say something. I don't know whether you've ever considered this before. I want to say, brothers and sisters, that for a long while, I don't know what you do, Dan, or Dan, but for a long while, we scratched our heads. You see people coming in and out of tents. You don't want to collar them at the door and say, give me your address and phone number. You don't want to buttonhole them. And we wondered, how can we make contact with these people? They come in, you know, often at the end of a meeting, and rightly so sometimes, not all the time, but rightly so sometimes there's a solemnity to the end of a gospel meeting and people are going out and you sort of lose opportunity to talk to people and gain their address and contact details. We wondered, do I carry a bunch of cards in the pocket and hand them to them as they're going out? We thought that wouldn't work. So we had the idea, and you're probably going to go, you're way behind the times down under. We've been doing this for years, but we had the idea of just getting a visitor's book. And at the beginning of every meeting, we would say, now there's a table at the back and there's Bibles and gospel tracts and take those things freely. But there is a visitor's book. And if you would like further contacts from this meeting, if you would like a visitation, if you want a free Bible, just drop your name into the visitor's book with your phone number or your address and we would be happy to attend to that. But we're not going to buttonhole anyone. Just feel free to lift the pen and do that. Make use of that. It's there. And unbelievable. We have pages and pages and pages and pages of requests for Bibles, requests for visits, hymn books requested. When are you going to have meetings like this in this area again? Here's my email. Drop me a line. The contacts we have made with believers and unbelievers have just been wonderful through the visitor's book. So what I want to stimulate in our minds out of this too is, brothers and sisters, we do need to engage and interact. We are very good at preaching the gospel, shutting the doors, locking them up, going home, drinking our coffee and getting into bed and patting ourselves on the back saying we've preached the gospel for another week. We really, really need to interact and make contacts with, the, with unbelievers and with believers as we have been hearing to see them taught. And a wonderful place to do that and a wonderful way to do that is to just have a visitor book. There's our family. It's a bit of a faded picture. Or well, from here it is at least. Uh, my beautiful wife, Rachel, very thankful for her. You know, I, I, I will reiterate this wherever I go. And sisters, young sisters, I want to encourage you. I really want to encourage you. And I, I, I don't say this about myself. I say this about my wife. You know, us guys, just ask Dan. And more than likely, Dan, although you're getting, a, you're getting up there a bit, brother Dan. <laughs> but uh, those of us who are still at a reasonable age, you know, we can camp anywhere. You know, we have a thing called a swag down under where we kind of unroll it and it's just a mattress with a waterproof roof and you can just lay it out anywhere, put your swag out. And, you know, we could just, we could camp anywhere. Uh, maybe a home doesn't mean, you know, trinkets and things don't maybe mean too much to the guys. But my wife is a real homemaker by nature. She is just a, a real womanly girl. And she would love 
In fact, I've seen her sitting on the bed in that bus and just sobbing sometimes. Because it's pretty tough sometimes when you've got seven kids in a little box and all the kids seem to be fighting. Apart from this one. But you know, it's muddy outside and there's no washing line. You can't send the kids out into the garden to play. And things sometimes... But she sacrificed a home for the spread of the gospel and for souls to be saved and for assemblies to be edified. Pray for her. Maybe God one day will give us a home, wherever that may be. But pray for her. And I thank God for such a wonderful wife. So we have five beautiful sons and two daughters in that order. And if you would like one of these cards, uh, you can see me afterwards and I can attend to that. I brought some with me. So the work of God goes on and we travel around constantly uh, in the work of God. There are a number of other workers which I have mentioned to you. Assemblies that... Uh, you would feel very at home in, conferences going on, just small assemblies in the main. Sometimes here and there you find a bigger assembly, but uh, you would feel very comfortable when you come down under. Just grab our details, tell us that you're coming, and we'll make arrangements for you for free accommodation. Do I just do that? No, obviously not. I want to come back to Hebrews chapter 12. And let us learn some lessons from this great chapter. We find in Hebrews chapter 12 that it addresses the subject of self-discipline once again. And I want to think of this subject with you. We began yesterday, and, and limited time is always a difficulty. And, and you kind of sit down as a preacher and you think, I, I didn't say this, and that probably didn't make sense, because if I'd had a bit longer, and I could have tied these things in. But yesterday we looked preeminently uh, and briefly at 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, as I, as I told you, is in that section of chapters 8 to 10. And it deals pr primarily with a thought of self-discipline in the life of, of the believer. Regulation in the life of the believer in view of this great race that we're running. Now that's exactly where we have read again in Hebrews. Hebrews again uses this kind of terminology, the writer to the Hebrews, as he, as he tells us that we're on this course, that we're on this race. In fact, the word race here in Hebrews is slightly different to the word race that we find in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. The word race here really has in view that it is a fight. It is a, a contest. That there is an, it is an endurance race. It is a marathon. This is not a sprint. This is not over and done with in five seconds. This is not something that we have worked it all out through Mr. Google very quickly. This is a, a marathon race that is in view here. And there is the possibility of disqualification. And I want to reiterate that, and then I want to clarify that. Brothers and sisters, if you were to read on in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, you would see that it deals with the subject of the reality of fellowship that Dan has been taking, taken up or already at this conference. And it deals with in the last section with the reality of fellowship either with God or with the devil. And you can't have both simultaneously. That's impossible. And it is possible for believers to actually have fellowship with devilish things. 
He makes that clear. And things that can influence you. And you progress on in the Corinthian epistle and you come to chapter 11 and he deals with the subject of headship and he commends them for this and he explains all about it to them. And then you come into the last section of that chapter and he deals with the subject of lordship, lordship, uh, preeminently the Lord's Supper. And he goes over again the details of the Lord's Supper and he comes to the end of this. And he says in that last section that because of your failure to regulate self-discipline in your own lives, God had to step in. And some of you are weak and sickly. And some even sleep. Because the, the hand of God had to be upon you in discipline. Because you refuse to exercise self-discipline in your life. He says you refuse to take note of what I have written to you about. The lessons that you could have learned from the Old Testament saints. Who were disqualified along the way. Because of sin, particular sin, those particular sins that he outlines for us. I want to say, brothers and sisters, there are particular sins that can disqualify you now for assembly fellowship. And we live in a world that makes nothing of sin, makes light of sin, laughs at sin. Did you know, of course you do, that covetousness can disqualify you from assembly fellowship? And I ask you the question at this conference, when was, you, when was the last time you heard what covetousness is taught in detail? I think we've forgotten that one. Where we have taken material things and placed them as the prime object of our lives at the expense of Christian testimony. Would you be prepared to be a tent dweller? Sarah was, sisters. Abraham was, brothers. Would you be prepared to go where God wants you to go? When you come back to chapter 11, it's, it's amazing. You'll find a catalogue of saints that stood out as gems upon the page of Scripture. And indelibly and particularly... God has placed them upon the page that we may learn. In fact, it's interesting. Come with me. That is the first section. Hebrews 12 is broken up into three sections. Verses 1 to 4, it's the administration of self-discipline. Verses 5 to 13, it's the acceptance of God's discipline. And verses 14 to 9, it is the afterwards, the effect of discipline. What effect? Does discipline have in my life? But the administration of self-discipline is necessary. And he begins by those examples. Wherefore, seeing we are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside, etc. So he says, look, this is to my mind at least. In view of chapter 11, in view of all of those that we've spoken to you about in the great catalog of faith. Chapter 11, faith. Chapter 12, hope. Chapter 13, Love. And in view of those in chapter 11, the great catalogue of faith in chapter 11, he says, now seeing we are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, we have all these examples surrounding us. And really the thought there, compassed about, is the thought to be surrounded, to encourage us on. 
You come to a word which is used beset. That is to be surrounded too. Let us lay aside every weight and sin which doth so easily beset us. That, that, is, that is a word to be surrounded by those who are standing to thwart you. And there are things that in our lives will thwart us from running the race freely. But coming back to these examples for a moment, it's interesting, I'm going to give you possibly a little bit of homework to do, but I'm going to encourage you along the way. Look through chapter 12 and chapter 13 and find the characters from chapter 11. The first few verses, you'll find Noah. Let us run with patience the race that lies before us. I see Noah there, the patient waiter. As he built that ark. And we are told in Peter's epistle. How in the long suffering of God. He waited in the days of Noah. And Noah was waiting too. With patience. With endurance. Run the race. It's not over yet. It might not be over in 20 years time. 200 years ago they thought the Lord was coming. I don't know when the Lord will come. It's imminent. Not necessarily immediate, but imminent. It could take place before I finish this sentence. And so we see that we are to, that we see Noah run the race with patience. Then you'll see Enoch looking off unto Jesus, looking away unto Jesus. There was a man in chapter 11 who was waiting for that moment when he would be translated by faith. Do you know Enoch knew he was going to be translated? Because it says this, by faith Enoch was translated. He knew exactly. He had been told by God that he was going to be translated. And he was waiting by faith, not by sight. By faith he was translated that he should not see death. And he was waiting for that very moment when God would catch him up. Extraordinary faith. You know that you're going to be caught up too. And by faith one day that will become a reality. That will become a reality to you. And by faith you're waiting for that very moment. Enoch, that came real for him. Seventy years before the ark was uh, seventy years before the flood. And then you'll find Abraham who for the joy that was set before him. That's Abraham. Endured the cross. That's Isaac. Despising the shame. That's Jacob. Having been set down at the right hand of the majesty. There's Joseph. And then you'll find Moses. Endured such contradiction of sinners against himself. He considered him. <laughs> he considered Christ. He kept his eyes on Christ. Brothers and sisters, you and I need to keep our eyes on Christ, but we need to administer self-discipline in our own lives. How can we be disqualified? Now, I'm going to enter into five minutes or so of the, uh, of the panel, but Dan will just speak faster because I do believe he is... Uh, thank you, brother. Very generous of you. Self-discipline is a necessity to avoid disqualification. How can you be disqualified? Well, plainly the Bible teaches us this. We can be disqualified in this life from certain things. It is possible for me to be disqualified from this place. It tells me in the scriptures that the deacon, the minister of the word, must 
be beyond reproach. Some people say they're not qualifications, they're qualities. Hmm, I'm not too sure. I think they could be both. Because we find that these things are essential in the life of the individual that takes a place like this. An overseer can be disqualified because he too must, must, must. We are taught very clearly that we can be disqualified from assembly fellowship. We ought to take that seriously. Drunkenness is another one that can disqualify us from assembly fellowship. Those that continue at the bottle habitually. Let us be careful that we don't enter into a course that will take us to the end, which is drunkenness. But we find that there can be disqualification. But brothers and sisters, ultimately God can disqualify us because he did that to some of the Corinthians. He took some away in sleep. But the ultimate thought behind disqualification is this, because Paul paints this into the fabric of 1 Corinthians chapter 9 when he's giving us the illustration of the race. He teaches us, brothers and sisters, there are crowns in view. And it is possible for us to sin in this life and for you to never find out about it. Oh, brothers and sisters, don't think that you can sin and it will be covered that it will never be found out. Our sins are covered by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank God for that. But ultimately, sin has a consequence. Oh, to be an individual that thinks that they can sin and no one will find out. And I can master it and control it. The tragedy, the tragedy of an individual that a imagines that. We just faced that recently. The tragedy of an individual who assumed that they could sin and cover it up for months and months and months and continue it on until God just does that. Disqualified. Crowns are in view. I said yesterday that there are, to my mind, at least six crowns that the scriptures speak about. And maybe we could come back and speak about that. Maybe you can look into the scriptures yourself and speak about that. But there are crowns, there are rewards on offer. There's a place in the kingdom, brothers and sisters. This is a fairly crude illustration, but I will give it to you anyway, because as a young believer, it really helped me in the life of faith. I remember talk, talking to my, my boss, who was Christian, I told you about last night, and I got saved, and now I'm working with him, and it's a real thrill to work with a Christian. Well, the transformation in the life of an individual, only God could do that work. And now I actually enjoyed going to work and talking to him about these things and asking him certain questions. And I remember him explaining to me one day, he said, Clive, because I listened to some ministry after I got saved, the very week I got saved actually. Mr. Norman Mellish was having meetings in the, one of the assemblies there and every night then from the Monday night I was at those meetings and wanted to be there and enjoyed being there. But I remember he said this and I 
I was actually sitting just down the front where you girls are. And I, I remember him saying this as I sat in the front row. He said, if Christ came to take his people away, what have you got to show for your Christian life? I remember sitting in the seat and thinking, I've got nothing. Nothing. I didn't realize then that the life of the unsaved was not counted into the... But I remember thinking, I've got... Because I was two months off being 26 when I was saved. But I remember sitting in the seat and thinking, I've got 26 years of waste. And I got into the car and I remember driving down the road and the, the tears falling down the cheeks and saying this, I've got to start now. I've got to start now. And whether I've started, God will be the judge. Brothers and sisters, there's a limited time and there's a kingdom in view and there's place that will bring glory to Christ. One day you're going to display all that you have been as a Christian now and I shrink as I speak of it. One day I'm going to display I may hide things from you but one day I'm going to display the reality of this life. And it's going to be on view. And you'll see how I really lived as a Christian. Boy, that's challenging. There can be disqualification with view to reward. And I remember my boss giving me this illustration. He said, Clive, it's a bit like this. There's a big warehouse and God draws back the door of the big warehouse. And there's shelves there like that. And they're lined with rewards. Crowns, maybe. Rewards. And he says to this, you see that one there? It had your name on it. And I put you through a little test on such and such a date and such and such a year. And I had a reward for you should you have passed through the test. But sadly, I can't give you that reward. Because you failed. But wouldn't it be good, brothers and sisters, if he opened the door and said, there's the reward. Because you pass through and you are undisqualified. You exercise self-discipline in your life. The exhortation to lay aside every weight and sin which doth so easily beset us. Standing to thwart those weights that are just not good for us in life. There are things that are not necessarily sins, but they weigh us down. You've never seen an athlete at the Olympics yet running with a heavy overcoat on, have you? No, he dispels and discards those things and sets out the endurance run with patience. Our eyes looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher. Our expectation, who for the joy that was set before him, Endured the, there is a joy, an exercise. Finally, verse 3. Consider him. Consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. I conclude with this. Brothers and sisters, what do you do? What do you do when you are weary in body? You're going to go home tonight. If you want to take this off just while I finish, please feel free to do that. You're going to go home tonight. There was a dear sister I was speaking to, and she felt whacked out, and she couldn't make it to the sing. And you go home, and you lie horizontal, 
and you get some rest for this weary body, and that's necessary. But what do you do if you have a weary mind? You don't rest it. Oh, no. You exercise it. And you consider him that endured, lest you become weary and faint. So the preservation, the prescription from God to preserve us from weariness and fainting as Israel did in the wilderness and becoming disqualified is to keep our eyes firmly on Jesus. It tells us that He's at the right hand and we ought to keep our eyes on Him. But it uses the term Jesus because of His earthly pathway. So let us read the Gospels and follow Him and imitate Him and we will be preserved from being disqualified.